you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew's Gospel. We'll look at chapter 12, verses 14 through 21. The text is also there on the next page of the bulletin. Matthew 12, 14 to 21. Let me pray, then we'll read the scripture. Father, what we need most is to know you. So we pray that you would help us to know you relationally, personally, as we consider this word about your son who reveals you to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. And many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, Christ. So we took a break from Matthew's Gospel for Advent and for Christmas. So it's been several weeks since we've been in it. So it's been a while. So let's have a brief recap of where we are in the Gospel. Uh, Matthew wrote his Gospel for a a Jewish audience uh, to show how Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. He's the King of the Jews. He's come in in fulfillment of the Hebrew Scriptures. He's come to establish the Kingdom of Yahweh, who is the God of the Jews, God of Israel. And the problem is that the Jews didn't accept Jesus as their Messiah or as their king. We know that from uh, really all the Gospels, really from the whole New Testament. Uh, And by the time Matthew wrote this Gospel, the history was already a reality. Jesus has been rejected by his own people. He's been delivered up by the religious leaders of his people, the Jews, for Roman crucifixion. So Matthew is writing to a group of people who have already showed a tendency to be hostile to Jesus. But he's writing to testify to them, to demonstrate to them that Jesus really is the one that they should have been expecting. He really is from God, the one that they should accept as their Lord, as their Savior. So Matthew quotes a lot from the Hebrew Scriptures, more than any other gospel writer. He quotes from the Old Testament. And here uh, we have his longest quotation from Isaiah 42. And so Matthew, uh, to this point, just recently, uh, the last chapter or so, he's been showing the mercy of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus, who said things like, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus gives rest because he's the Lord of rest. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. He's the gracious Lord who delivers us from the condemnation we deserve. He's the divine Lord who restores broken people in his compassion, uh, who makes us whole in our relationship to God and gives us peace, shalom. Uh, Sadly, there are people who absolutely hate the idea of a merciful Savior like this, divine mercy for sinners. The Pharisees, uh, the Jewish religious leaders, they made a big show of zeal for God's law, 
but actually they show themselves to be diametrically opposed to God's law as they set themselves against God's Messiah and against his mercy. They were committed to a transactional way of relating to God where you know, they get to think of themselves as good moral people and God sort of owes them for it and treats them how they deserve uh, or how they feel they deserve to be treated. So they couldn't stand the implication that they were on level terms with other sinners. With real sinners, right? Those bad people, they deserve to be condemned because they're doing it wrong and they're ruining everything for the rest of us, for us good people. But here's Jesus being gentle and kind and welcoming of sinners, uh, even claiming to represent the heart of God in his mercy towards sinners, which exposed the evil then inside the religious heart. Their, their unreasonable hatred of his goodness was being brought to light. And what happens when people who you know, really like to think that they've got it all together, people who depend on their own rightness to feel good about themselves, what happens when the foundations of their self-perception are threatened? What happens when you, you've always thought you were good, but you're being exposed as truly unrighteous, even in your very core? What then? Well, you go on the attack, of course. And the best defense is a good offense. So the, the Pharisees went out and conspired against Jesus how to destroy him. They didn't like what he was saying. It threatened them to the core. And so they conspired against him how to destroy him. And now, <clears throat> Matthew is revealing here in our passage, Jesus' response to this opposition. His response to this opposition. And what he says about Jesus is yet further proof that Jesus is the true Messiah come in fulfillment of the scriptures. He's the one that the people of God should have been prepared to expect all along because his response is this. Jesus, aware of their conspiring to destroy him, withdrew from there. Now, as someone who naturally tries to avoid conflict, uh, especially violent conflict, uh, someone who suffers from the fear of men, I can say I probably would have done the same thing. I would have withdrawn in order to preserve my life when people are conspiring against me to destroy me. My habit is to remove myself from the situation. <clears throat> but I'd probably go further than what Jesus is doing. I'd really lay low for a while. I'd hide out, uh, let things blow over, stop doing whatever it was that made everybody so viciously angry at me. But that's not what Jesus is doing. He isn't withdrawing uh, out of a fear of conflict. He's not withdrawing out of self-preservation, really any selfish motivations at all. He's withdrawing so that he can continue to serve others. Uh, you see that he didn't lay low or even pause his public ministry. Many followed him and he healed them all. This is still a very visible ministry. But Jesus isn't doing it for the sake of visibility. He isn't doing it for the optics, we would say. He healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. So well, he isn't hiding, but neither is he seeking attention. He is simply, so simply it's he's easy to overlook, <laughs> simply serving others faithfully. This reveals him to be God's beloved servant. <clears throat> this was to fulfill 
what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, it says, his response to their hostility to withdraw, continue to serve, was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. So, Matthew quotes here at length from Isaiah 42, uh, which is the beginning of a section in Isaiah of several chapters, uh, probably about chapter 42 to 53, where God speaks of his servant. We sometimes call them the servant songs of Isaiah. Christians have always found these chapters in Isaiah to contain some of the clearest Old Testament most, most specific Old Testament references or prophecies that find their fulfillment in Jesus. We look at those chapters in Isaiah, written 700 years before Jesus was born, and we say, this is obviously a description of Jesus, and it can't possibly describe anybody else. Uh, for example, you know, later in chapter 42, after, after what um, Matthew quotes from Isaiah 42, <clears throat> but something that Cheryl read in our Old Testament reading. Uh, it's said that the servant will open the eyes of the blind, which is something Jesus did uh, frequently, both literally and figuratively. Uh, in these chapters, the servant is called a light for the nations, and Jesus is called a light of the world. He makes God known to all peoples, all nations, the whole world. In Isaiah 52, Uh, The servant is described as having an appearance that is marred beyond human semblance, which calls to mind the torture that Jesus suffered as he was beaten and crucified. And in chapter 53, uh, sort of the pinnacle of it all, the servant is said to be despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, who has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, who was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and with his wounds we are healed. And we understand this to mean that Jesus would die for the forgiveness of sins as a substitutionary atonement in our place. And there are many more words about the servant in those chapters that we think point very clearly to the life and ministry of Jesus. And the problem is still, even Isaiah knew beforehand that the servant would go unrecognized, that he would go unwelcome, that he would go rejected by his own people. So in Isaiah 49, the servant is called one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation. That is the nation of Israel, by his own people. So there's something about the servant that provokes people. There's something about the servant that provokes his own people. Or maybe we should say, rather, there's something in people that is provoked by the servant. Uh, Why would the Pharisees conspire to get rid of Jesus? Why would Matthew have to write his gospel spelling it all out for the Jews like this? Why wouldn't the people who knew the Hebrew Scriptures best be most prepared, be most delighted to receive the servant when he arrived? For the most part, Jews still won't admit that Jesus fulfills the Scriptures. Uh, They won't even admit that Isaiah, in that section, those several chapters of the servant songs, they won't even admit that Isaiah is talking about the Messiah when he writes about the servant in those chapters. Uh, To be fair, 
Sometimes it's difficult to understand what Isaiah is talking about because sometimes he writes of the servant as one chosen person, yes. But sometimes he writes of the servant with language that refers to the nation, to Israel, the whole corporate people of God. The nation of Israel uh, was chosen to be God's servant among all the rest of the nations, to bear witness to the world of the glory of the God that they had a unique relationship with, that they uniquely knew. But the people, the nation, had failed in this mission long before Jesus came on the cross, long before even Isaiah wrote his prophecy. So Isaiah's prophecy is a response to this failure. So Isaiah switches between the servant as the people of God and the servant as the chosen one. Because the chosen one was meant to fulfill what the people had failed to do. So when Isaiah talks about the servant as the people, it's God's indictment against them for failing to deliver true justice, for failing to live up to the standard of God's true righteousness in their relationship with him and with each other and with the world. And so he says in Isaiah 42 about his servant as the people, this indictment, who is blind but my servant or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who's blind as the servant of Yahweh? He's saying my servant, the corporate people, is, is the most blind, is the most deaf. He's saying that his corporate people need to be redeemed. But then... God also talks about his servant as the Redeemer, as the Spirit-filled, that is, anointed, that is, the Messiah, as the Spirit-filled Redeemer who will finally glorify him. So when Isaiah talks about the servant as the chosen one, it is to promise the fulfillment of God's justice, the fulfillment of God's righteousness in the world, to promise the redemption of his people, to promise the redemption of his people as his servant. So the chosen one would be the representative of the people, the one on behalf of the many. God has called his people to be a servant, and he's promised this chosen servant to fulfill that calling on their behalf. Because they have, and they always have, and they always will fail to fulfill this calling themselves. And admittedly, this is difficult to understand. It's It is hard, Uh, but it is the kind of thing we see throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, throughout the Old Testament, about what kind of Messiah, what kind of Savior God's people were to expect, what kind of salvation. It's the vicarious kind. It's the kind where one lives on behalf of the many. One fulfills the calling on behalf of the many. So he would come to do what Israel had failed to do. And to be honest, not, not just what they had failed to do, what they'd refused to do. Theirs was a long history of willful rejection, of sinful rejection, of God's word, of God's purpose and calling in their lives. So it makes sense then that a people with a track record, a long centuries, millennia long track record of rejecting God and his word and his ways, they'd also reject the chosen one who came to embody God's word, who came to fulfill God's word, especially since that one is identified as the servant. 
even the suffering servant, as we recognize him in Isaiah. So this one's supposed to represent the people, to fulfill the calling of the people. And that calling is to suffering service. That's the role that is supposed to belong to God's people. Who wants that role? Who wants to be identified as a suffering servant? Who wants to have anything to do with suffering or with service, let alone a combination of the two? Didn't God set apart his people for a great and special privilege in the world? Well, suffering service doesn't sound very great or very special. So, God, no thanks. And then along comes the one who embodies suffering service, who reminds us all of God's calling on our lives and how we've rejected that calling in our selfishness. And it it really isn't any wonder that the Jews rejected Jesus. That should be par for the course, really. That's our expectation. The real wonder is that anyone in the world received Jesus, that anyone would look at Jesus and say, yes, that suffering servant is God fulfilling our humanity, and I want to be in communion with him. That's a miracle of the Holy Spirit overcoming our natural instinct to reject God and his word and his his ways. That's the real wonder when anybody receives that suffering servant. Actually, the real wonder is Jesus himself. The servant. The real wonder is the fact that Jesus is God with us. He is God in the flesh. That means that he is God himself taking the nature of a servant. God fulfilling the calling of the suffering servant of his own free will. The real wonder is seen in how Jesus responds to the hostility that he encounters. He didn't come to be antagonistic or confrontational. He didn't get into it with those who were seeking to uh, destroy him, plotting against him. He wasn't paralyzed by the fear of dangerous opposition. He didn't throw a pity party when he faced rejection. He didn't get into a shouting match with his critics. He didn't get defensive about his ministry. Try to convince them, no, look, look what I'm doing. It is right. He didn't come to grow a big, showy celebrity ministry. He didn't take advantage of the conflict to gain visibility in the world. He didn't seek a political stage to make his great arguments. He didn't come to advance the kingdom forcefully, bulldozing and steamrolling people who didn't get get on board with his plans. As Isaiah said, He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. This is not to say that he never bore witness to the truth or that he never raised his voice above a whisper. It's pointing out his absolutely service-oriented nature. That he is concerned with nothing else. He simply withdrew from the people who opposed him so that he could continue serving those who came to him for help. Jesus is gentle and lowly in heart. Jesus is humble and unassuming and unpretentious. Jesus is not absorbed with himself, with his own reputation, or with his own comfort. He pays attention to others. 
He looks to the interests of others and he serves. He doesn't serve self-consciously. He doesn't serve for the sake of appearances in order to impress or to get attention. Service is not just an affectation with him. Serving God and his people, the service itself for love's sake is more important to him than recognition for his service. He doesn't need the recognition. He doesn't serve because he needs others to think well of him. He doesn't serve because he wants to feel good about himself. He serves because he loves. Service is in his nature. He is the servant. It is who he is because he's the son of God, the God who is love. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him. So the completely selfless service of Jesus corresponds perfectly with God's nature. It goes hand in hand with the anointing of God's own spirit. It is the life of the spirit-filled redeemer, the selfless service of Jesus. It fulfills God's calling. It reflects God's holy will. And it pleases God the Father thoroughly. Christ's service resonates with the deepest places in God, in his very soul. With him, my soul is well pleased. So Jesus, making himself available to others, pleases God in his soul. Jesus, living entirely for the good of others, pleases God in his soul. Jesus, taking care of the sick, pleases God in his soul. Jesus, being gentle with the vulnerable, pleases God in his soul. Jesus, letting the desperate and the needy impose upon him, pleases God in his soul. Jesus redeeming our servanthood on our behalf pleases God in his soul. Jesus restoring our damaged humanity pleases God in his soul. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench. So a reed, uh, you know, it's like a strong piece of grass, basically. <laughs> a reed was only good for anything as long as it was you know, strong and straight. You can't measure Things You can't support things very well with a bruised, floppy reed. We have bruised and damaged ourselves in our relationship with God in our sin, but Jesus doesn't just snap us in two and discard us into the fire. The servant restores us, and he makes us whole in his own wholeness. A wick uh, wasn't any good for light if it's just an ember putting off just a bunch of smoke. In our sin, we've obscured and polluted the light of God, the light of God's image in us. But Jesus doesn't extinguish our life. He doesn't snuff us out. The servant redeems us, and he makes us to shine again through our relationship with God, through his own relationship with God. Jesus doesn't despise the weak and the broken. Even those who are weak and broken through our own sinful, deliberate fault. He has compassion on us, even though our damage is self-inflicted. He serves us, holding nothing back 
even though we're foolish and selfish and demanding and whiny. When you come to Jesus and impose upon him and ask him to serve you, he restores your damaged humanity and God is pleased in his soul. It is good news that Christ's mercy towards sinners resonates so deeply with God. It is good news that God sees his son serving people like you and me, sinners, and says, yes, good. This is exactly what I always wanted most of all. This is exactly my vision for human love in my image. This is exactly how I would live if I were a human being. When God sees his beloved servant, it means our redemption. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, they don't sit in the privacy of heaven complaining about you and me and all our failures and all our wretched sins and how stinky we are. They don't brainstorm excuses to be finally rid of us. They don't conspire against us how to make life miserable for us, how to destroy us. The triune God of love plots from eternity how to have mercy on us. How to redeem us. How to bring us into the divine love and restore us. Because really, uh, we were all made to love and to serve like him all along. We don't. We despise serving, especially those that we deem to be beneath us. When some low creature imposes upon you for a favor, something that interrupts your plans, uh, takes time out of your schedule, uh, costs you something, doesn't pay you anything back, uh, generally disturbs your comfort, and they don't even ask very nicely. Are you enthusiastic and willing and accommodating? Not if you're anything like me, you aren't. And that's because there's something wrong with us, something Jesus came to redeem, something Jesus came to make right. We sin, Jesus serves. Our life of sin was piled on his back at the cross as if it were his life of sin, and his life of service poured out on us, wasted on us? His life of service is received by God joyfully as if it were our life of service. It's good news for sinners that Jesus is the servant, the suffering servant who suffered to redeem our failed servanthood. In his name, Gentiles will hope, or nations, nations, the world us. It is by believing that his good name counts for us, that his good name has been imputed to us, that we find hope for salvation and restoration. It is by living in his own relationship with God, vicariously, by dwelling in the divine love by his grace, that our servanthood is renewed in his image. So come to Jesus, come to the servant, ask him to serve you, Impose upon him in your rude way. Ask him to forego his own comforts. Ask him to sacrifice his very life for you to make you whole. Behold the servant who pleases the soul of God. Behold the love of God in his servant. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we're prone to reject you in our selfishness, to reject your word to reject your ways and your calling and your purpose for our lives, to reject your humble, serving, suffering love. We're the kind of people who 
plot against you to destroy you. We don't know what it really means to impose on your mercy, not really. Uh, We pray that you would help us to impose on your mercy. Help us to behold your son, the servant. Help us to see the wonder of your gracious love in him in ways that open our eyes and draw our hearts and transform our minds. You have called us to be like you, and you've sent your son to fulfill this calling for us, and you're preparing us to live out this calling through faith in him, through our relationship with him. So please help us not to be afraid to be like you, a suffering servant, but to find it all of our hope and delight to behold you and to know you as you remake us in your image. We pray in Jesus' name.